Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is part one of The Way of the Wolf and looks at the complex relationship that martial artists have with predatory behaviour. This is a huge topic that cannot be completely covered on these shows, so I intend to go into more detail in my upcoming Bullshit Suit and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work series of books. For now, please view these humble efforts as an introduction to an important discussion. I hope you enjoy the show. The world's apex predator is the human being. Yet, as a society, we have feared and revered our fellow non-human animal predators long before civilization existed. As much as we understand them to be part of the natural world, the otherness allows our storytellers to often bestow upon them imagined supernatural attributes. The word beast, for example, has been used to describe a living creature that is not of our species and has become a metaphor to describe extreme examples of the human character. Rapists, paedophiles and sadistic murderers are described as beasts in tabloid headlines and yet within the environment of fitness training and conditioning, being called a beast is a complementary term. Where the line between metaphor and literal supernatural belief is drawn in the collective human consciousness is often down to interpretation, context and speculation. This is never more true than when it comes to the wolf. The largest extant member of the Canidae family, wolves have a long and complex interpersonal relationship with their fellow pack predators, humans. This relationship resulted in one, now extinct species of wolf becoming the first known domesticated animal, the dog, man's best friend. However, centuries of warring with the grey wolf has had a telling impact on our culture and mythology. Within our culture, we see observations and tales of caution surrounding the way certain human beings prey on their own kind. Due to my rather unusual background, first growing up in a travelling circus, later working with unscrupulous martial artists, and currently living on a private zoo, I have effectively lived and worked with wolves, both metaphorically and literally. Of the two, I can safely say the latter is far more trustworthy and straightforward. They are a force of nature that deserve our respect. Humans have and continue to misunderstand wolves. Their risk level was ridiculously elevated in my home island of Great Britain, which along with deforestation, led to their extinction around the time of Henry VII. However, as if to justify this medieval sense of terror, several centuries later, between 130 to 210 attacks were attributed to a wolf or wolves in the Gavordan region of our neighbouring country of France from 1764 until 1767. This resulted in national panic that quickly turned into legend. The evolution of the reports on these real attacks became readily mixed up with public hysteria and werewolf mythology. So blurred did the retelling become in the public consciousness that this true story soon became relegated to the realm of folkloric fantasy and stayed there for a long time. What the excellent investigation by historian J.M. Smith tells us about this legend is that its timing was very telling. The seemingly chaotic and primeval nature of these attacks was starkly juxtaposed with 1760s French society, which is in the thick of the Enlightenment age. Wolves who have shared our hunting ground since long before we became human, are a reminder of nature's inherent savagery. Since these incidents and the rapid progression of modernity that has led us to detach ourselves from the natural world and to view it through idolised eyes, our societal view of wolves has become no less distorted than it was when we cried werewolf. In some respects it's gone in the opposite direction. 
In recent times, lack of contact with these remarkable hunters and the rarity of their attacks has led to the incorrect view that wolves are relatively harmless. Sometimes such a view is shockingly displayed by those who book my parents' wolf walks and a thorough health and safety brief has to be given. Such encounters inevitably balance individuals' levels of respect for these beautiful animals. A different form of confusion occurs with the far more duplicitous and treacherous human wolf predators in our society. Just as the real wolf is both feared and revered in our culture, we note that human beings, including martial artists, have a very strange relationship with the way they view social predatory behaviour. I've witnessed the same people warning their students about certain predatory cues publicly hero-worship the same methods being used by luminaries in the business motivational world. Wolves have served as a mirror into our wild past, which makes us think of a time when we lived by our instincts. And where better place to contemplate instincts and self-protection than with our best-known book on survival intuition? Gavin de Becker's book, The Gift of Fear, has become the go-to soft skills book in the English-speaking self-protection world. Since its publication in 1998, its reputation has grown through the subculture of reality-based self-defence to the point where many teachers, including yours truly, have proclaimed it to be the most important book on self-protection ever written. De Becker's work was straight out of the gate into mainstream interest, becoming a long-time New York Times bestseller and gaining worldwide acclaim. The Gift of Fear has long been supported by the massively influential TV chat show guru, Oprah Winfrey, who dedicated several hour-long shows to celebrate the book. Like many authors that received Oprah's approval, De Becker was a huge success and became a guest on virtually every North American chat show. To date, he has yet to leave the top 100 list of Amazon.com's best-selling self-help writers. On the face of it, such appeal and interest makes The Gift of Fear seem out of place next to other typical recommended reading books on the average RBSD list. De Becker, unlike the vast majority of authors that are venerated in these circles, does not come from a martial arts background. The author's knowledge and experience did not come from fighting in the theatre of professional war or on the front lines of law enforcement and he wasn't a flat-nosed doorman. Yet his professional career, advising on security matters, is enviable to most who are involved in the teaching of self-protection. This includes three presidential appointments, as well as a position on a congressional committee. His work on the prediction of violence has led him to be employed as a consultant to the Central Intelligence Agency, the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Marshal Service, and the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. A more objective and critical view reveals that The Gift of Fear is not without its shortcomings. Despite the book's length, which imitates the doorstop-sized pulp thrillers populating an average airport newsagent, it's far from being the last word on self-protection. Far more comprehensive books have been published before and since the release of The Gift of Fear. The work doesn't touch upon hard skills in any way, referring to direct interest in this area to courses offered by model mugging or impact. As far as personal security is concerned, the gift of fear only offers a partial view of situational awareness at home or abroad. Peter Constantine's Streetwise and Travel Safe provide better information in this respect. De Becker's focus is on human behaviour, but this is also limited to one area. The physiological effects of adrenaline and other stress hormones in either predator or prey aren't covered. If you want to know whether an aggressive person is intending to get physical, I would advise Jeff Thompson's Dead or Alive or Rory Miller's Meditations on Violence. Career criminals and tribal violence are not discussed in The Gift of Fear. In fact, despite using a variety of case studies, the work falls short of providing even a rudimentary lineup of different predator types. His target audience is quite obvious. Going back through a book that was described by the Boston Globe as a how-to book that reads like a thriller, provocative, empowering, 
One can see why Oprah's audience would love it so much. The gift of fear covers disgruntled ex-employees who may return to their former place of work to commit atrocities in the chapter Occupational Hazards, which has attracted the attention of corporate clients for obvious reasons. But the book is mainly focused on predatory behaviour. This includes stalking and domestic abuse in different forms, which are common concerns for those in Oprah Winfrey's considerable audience, as well as a not inconsiderable circle of influence. The book would be best described as a highly specialised study into the pre-incident behaviours of the deceptive social predator. Even in this specific area, the scientifically-minded self-protection teacher might raise an eyebrow at Debecca's veneration of intuition. Intuition, as any critical thinker will tell you, has never been scientifically proven. This isn't surprising given that intuition is generally defined as the enemy of reason and logical thinking. It overrides rationality. When one elevates intuition, society leaves itself vulnerable to delusion and charlatanism. Therefore, it's not surprising that the criticism of human society's reliance on the inner tutor is usually prompted by the superstition of gamblers and psychics. When viewed as an infallible mystical power, intuition has little credence and is easily ridiculed. Under clinical scientific conditions, those who claim to have supernatural powers of precognition routinely do not perform better than wild guessing. Humans are instinct pattern seekers, so it's little surprising that we find dedicated gamblers getting themselves caught up in all sorts of mental tangles of their own making as they search for a formula to determine their fortunes. Likewise, confirmation bias, where memory recalls all the times that working on a hunch worked and discounts the many times it did not, allows the susceptible to believe they have a reliable gut instinct, often reinforced by others with similar beliefs, as well as the numerous detective heroes of those doorstop-sized airport thrillers I mentioned earlier. Yet, putting this all to one side, psychologists argue that a type of intuition does exist in the unconscious mind. One way to interpret intuition in a non-mystical way is to think of it as the mind running on autopilot. The unconscious mind accepts patterns and recognises cues, which enables us to perform learned behaviours and skills without engaging our conscious mind. From a physical training perspective, this can work to our advantage, and it's often what we're trying to achieve when we practise techniques. Indeed, even complex behaviours can be trained to a high standard and work under pressure if they're trained regularly and correctly enough. However, this can also work against our situational awareness where the conscious mind should be readily engaged for new hazards and dangers in an otherwise familiar environment. We want a balance of the two in self-protection and life in general. In this respect, De Becker has a reasonable case. The training he offers and preaches is a recognition of cues provided by the unconscious mind. There is a fair argument here that the survival signals De Becker says our intuition picks up on are shortcut observation patterns our mind has adopted. The question arises, as it often does in such discussions, is this a product of nature or nurture? Are these survival signals part of our evolutionary makeup that has come from a species that rose to the top of the food chain by exploiting their high social development? Or do many of us learn these behaviours through childhood and domestic politics? I've often been questioned about my reasoning for placing attitude before awareness in my list of most important attributes in self-protection. As I've said a few times on this show, attitude should be at the start and should underlie every aspect of self-protection. Debecker demonstrates why awareness alone isn't enough by the simple fact that all the witness testimonies he offers are from people who vividly recalled their intuitive cues, but, in many cases, failed to act upon them. If their detailed accounts are to be believed, none of these victims lacked awareness. Debecker believes that an education in recognising these survival cues, which comes from unconscious observations of a predator's behaviour, is enough for someone to act effectively. However, an individual needs to have a proactive attitude and a genuine commitment to the material they have been taught in order to not be swayed by a predator's main non-physical weapon, persistence.
My podcast, Aftermath Part 1, discussed Rebecca's pre-incident indicators or PINs when going through an historic crime case. However, listing them again is relevant to discussing how we have come to view a deceptive predator. My apologies for any repetition, but I think it's worth going through them, especially if you haven't heard the other show. These observations are a mixture of psychological tactics of manipulation and also mental slips that apparently reveal a predator's intentions. The PINs, also described as survival signals, are as follows. Forced teaming. This is where social conventions are manipulated by a predator who's trying to establish rapport with his intended victim. You might use the term we prematurely, implying we're in the same boat situation when one does not exist. Charm and niceness. Charm, De Becker argues, has an ill-deserved good reputation. Many a notorious and brutal criminal have weaponized charm and niceness to get past the natural defences of their victims. Too many details. Here, a liar adds more details to their story than is clearly needed in their efforts to convince the listener. This is because the predator knows he's telling a lie and is overcompensating to make the tale sound believable. Type casting. Here, the predator casts the target in a slightly unfavourable light using some form of label. It is usually a mild insult designed as bait for the prey to prove to the predator they are wrong in their typecasting. I can see you're a timid sort of person. Might be a tactic to get someone to override their natural inclination to not step into a potentially dangerous situation. Lone sharking. I often label this pin as the free gift. Many deceptive predators offer assistance to their would-be victims in some form. They give them something that the victim hasn't asked for, thus creating a debt. Now the victim feels the need to reciprocate. They owe their new benefactor in some way. The unsolicited promise. The predator starts making promises that he will leave the victim alone. He won't hurt the victim and so on, when none of this has been brought up in the conversation. Like the too many details signal, Debecca puts it that liars overcompensate in their speech. Discounting the word no. If there was one survival signal worth teaching to a student of self-protection about deceptive predators, it is this one. When someone will not take no for an answer, their intention is to control you. They have no respect for your wishes. A deceptive predator might be immediately recognised by the fact that he discounts the word no. A cynic will notice that these age-old common sense observations are conveniently seven in number. Such an observation might be a critical thinking red flag or sign in its own right, Seven has a magical, mystical connection that stretches back to antiquity and today's modern mystics, the self-help gurus, regularly use it to brand their formulas for success. You will recall, as much as the gift of fear is touted as a self-protection book taken from the popular psychology section, it has long been recognised as a self-help book. This is little surprising given the fact that since the 1990s, until its final episode in 2011, the Oprah Winfrey show legitimised self-help in the American consciousness. Prior to this, self-help had almost a century's worth of influence over martial arts teaching. However, the seven pins to Becker described in his book provide us with a disturbing revelation in martial arts subculture. Despite the possible cynicism behind their conception, the seven survival signals are a very easy way to break down the methods of the deceptive social predator. I've taught them and I continue to teach them. However, it was only when I started working with corporate clients that an uneasy sense of familiarity was remarked upon. One of the clients in a weekend seminar came straight out with it. That's Sales 101! Later, I discussed this comparison during one of my private lessons. My client, 
who had a lot of experience working with different sales companies, confirmed that this was a legitimate observation. She told me that one door-to-door -door sales firm even told their salespeople to put their foot in the door, effectively trespassing and using forced entry when targeting potential customers. I'm not going to pretend that I hadn't started seeing the connection before the Sales 101 revelation, but this moment really made me look into the systems endorsed by martial artists to sell martial arts and the real values that martial arts teachers respected in others. Gavin De Becker was effectively listing tactics at the heart of business self-help programs. Empowerment is one of the two camps Steve Salerno says makes up self-help culture and industry, the other being victimization. De Becker's book firmly falls into this camp. However, so does salesmanship. In this respect, we might view the survival signals of the gift of fear as countermeasures to many of the techniques and principles taught by De Becker's fellow authors of this genre. Selling in its rawest form is a game of active engagement whereby the salesperson works hard to convince a potential customer to buy their wares. Martial arts schools, taking their cue from the physical culture movement and industry that began in the late 19th century, have learned that they're in the business of creating a need in the minds of customers who would otherwise categorise their services as an indulgent leisure activity. Some of us work hard to simply provide the best service we can and then use marketing tools at our disposal to make others aware of our work. However, a good number will resort to whatever tactics are effective to get large numbers of people through the door and then keep them there long enough to buy memberships, equipment and gradings on top of the regular lesson fees. Like any other business, the commercial martial arts model can easily be exploited as a method for hooking customers and then making as much money from them as possible. The way many martial arts teachers approach the way they run their businesses can be compared to the way a predator hunts and survives. There are shameless and blatant examples in our subculture that most will decry for their audacity. However, it is not these McDojo operators I'm singling out. There are plenty of well-meaning, skilled and attentive martial arts and self-defense teachers who have been infected by a wolfish philosophy that has transferred over from the self-help movement. I am again teaching a double seminar in March 2019 at the Blackwater Leisure Centre, Malden, Essex in the UK. The first two hours will be part of my When Parents Aren't Around Children's Self-Protection Programme starting at 11am and the last three hours starting at 1.30pm will be part of my Vagabond Warriors Martial Arts Cross Training Programme. I hope to see some of you there. Please book your tickets through Lee Mullen of KRU Practical Karate. I'm very honoured to be invited to teach for Lee's Club who has kindly opened its doors to anyone interested in attending. I no longer teach regular classes, so this is an opportunity for those of you who live a bit too far afield to attend my private lessons to experience the Club Chimera martial arts approach. Links are in the show notes to this episode. Don't forget, I'll be dropping in extra unofficial podcast episodes throughout this year's run. There's already one up there since my last official episode, and more are on their way. Thanks again, everyone, for your support with the show. Please don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube, as well as check out the clubchimera.com website. There is new content going up there all the time. I will get onto Instagram as soon as I can start arranging some footage. Please send in feedback and like, share and subscribe to support my work. In the next episode, we will explore the wolf-predator metaphor more and its relationship with martial arts subculture. Does the popular rash guard and t-shirt proverb regarding lions or tigers and wolves provide us with an accurate metaphor? 
are some of us unknowingly warning our students about the same tactics we use to recruit them? I look forward to tackling these questions and more in the next part of The Way of the Wolf. Thanks for listening.